This is the Quantum Divide. It's a podcast for people curious about quantum networking, what it means for the IT industry and what it might mean for them. It's still early days for quantum, but it's a very broad industry with many different topics to understand. The most imminent are post-quantum cryptography and quantum key distribution. Looking further ahead, there are many academics building ways to distribute quantum computers, to leverage the power of multiple machines over a network, and how to manage quantum state over that network. Greetings, I'm Dan Holm. I'm a quantum curious technologist with no classical training in quantum physics. So basically that means I'll be the one asking all the stupid questions. For me, this podcast is a vehicle to build my knowledge and I want to take you on that journey with me. Steve, second episode already. I'm pretty excited, especially considering this topic. So we've agreed we're going to talk about distributed quantum computing. And I know you've done some work on this previously. Well, first of all, how are you doing? And what have you been up to? <laughs> yeah, I've been doing well. It's finally summer in, in Germany, so you can go out for walks and not be rained on or cold. <laughs> so yep. it's a nice perk. Always a winner. Same in the UK, pretty much. I think we've got similar weather, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay, mate. Yeah, yeah, you let me know about your project that you worked on previously and a blog that you wrote about distributed quantum computing. I'll put the, the link in the notes, in the show notes, for people to read if they want. But do you want to give us an overview of your view on this fascinating topic and some of the research you did? And as usual, I'll ask a stupid questions as we go along. Yeah, sure. So the idea is that when you're building a quantum computer, let me phrase this properly. <laughs> you have to be careful with these kind of topics. When you're building a quantum computer, the goal is to maximize the number of qubits that can fit on the quantum processing unit. Because you have to contain these qubits in this housing that protects it from the environment in most cases. And this housing is not cheap and you have to keep it very controlled. And even things like outside of the container influence the quality of the qubits. So things like vibrations in the room or vibrations in the ground it could be something like a cars passing by the building are enough to trigger infidelities in the qubits. So these things are very expensive and they're very controlled and you have to keep them in this small container. And what that means is that you're limited to how many qubits you can fit in that container. Not only is it, you maximize the number of qubits that you want in that container, but it's a container and it's only so big. Moreover, the way you control the qubits that are inside that container need classical control information coming from the outside. So when you run a quantum algorithm, you program the algorithm classically, so that means it's converted from code to control logic, which then influences the qubits using usually light pulses that have to come in from the outside. So those control signals have a bandwidth as well. You can't send unlimited amount of control signals to one device. So there's a lot of things that influence the size of the quantum computer. And what I think is a solution is that you can take more than one of these containers and QPUs, and put them side by side or put them in the same room, and then put an interface between them and network them together. So now you have more than one quantum computer, which are more or less independent. You put them side by side or near each other so that you can network them very easily. And then you have to introduce, okay, so now you have two quantum computers that 
quotes mean in theory twice the power, which likely isn't the case. It doesn't scale like that, but you can think about having at least more qubits and you solve the problem in a simpler way than thinking about increasing the size of the container or trying to reduce the number of control signals or try to increase the bandwidth that you have into the single device, but you just take two copies of what we already have and now work with those two things independently, but then network them together so we can use them together at the same time. Yeah, and in the industry at the moment, right, there is, from what I can tell, there's different levels of scaling being implemented to improve quantum computing. The first is obviously scaling up the NISC quantum computers, so improving their fidelity using error correction, increasing the number of qubits, and so on. And what we're talking about here is a bit like clustering in the traditional IT world. It's having multiple machines on a network that can share a workload, in this case, some kind of algorithm or whatever the workload is. We're talking at quite a low level at this time, somewhere down the road where the quantum computers are more advanced, more stable. Um, This may be a a good way to very quickly scale up. If there's not necessarily a threshold that's reached, but some kind of technological limit in scaling the quantum computer, of which we are, from what I can tell, breaching quite a few as time passes, but ultimately... In order to break Shaw's algorithm, it's like a billion qubits or something. And where are what? We've got machines now. I think IBM have some machines around a few hundred qubits, or maybe even, I think there are others with different types of machines, which are up to four or 5,000 qubits. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but I, it's, it's hard to compare them, I know, because they're all different. there's many different types of quantum computers, right? That's, yeah, that's correct. I think I, one thing I forgot to mention also is these special containers and the special environment that these containers have to live in, because it's so hard to find the right place for these quantum computers to sit, then they tend to put them more than one in the same housing. So if you think of how IBM has their quantum computers, I think they have the biggest one right now is something like 477 or something like that. I don't know if there's a thousand qubit machine yet, but I think it's in their projections. Uh, but anyway, so they they tend to put these computers in the same area, physically locate like physically located close to each other. But the, the the idea is yeah, simply if we were to network those quantum computers together, the goal is to distribute the workloads amongst those computers because of the fact that there's not enough qubits to execute the full algorithm on a single quantum process. Yeah, I think I got the five thousand from D Wave actually. They have a two thousand qubit chip, I think. And, but it's a different type of system, right? There's quantum annealing as opposed to trapped ions or so on. So I get, yeah, I guess it's back to the whole apples and apples. Okay. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. That but, makes sense. But anyway, yeah, I think maybe in a, would you call the IBM machines NISC machines or how would you describe them? Superconducting? It might even be superconducting qubits, but I don't know. Like NISC machine is tricky to say. Like it's, of course, it is a NISC machine, but does it do something yet? that can be useful for us. I would still say they're in this prototyping stage where the quality of the cloud computer is still before NISC, in my opinion. <laughs> so the question is, does it do something to improve what we can do currently? I don't know. It's, in my opinion, not yet. But so it's, it's technically NISC. It's, it's not error corrected, that's for sure. Okay, let's. I propose we do an extra episode on, on the different types of quantum computers, but we've gone on a tangent already. So 
Yeah, yeah back to the uh, distributed quantum computing project that you're talking. Yeah. Okay. So the the problem with the connecting quantum computers together, it's not like you just connect them together and then you get everything for free. You don't like I said, the scaling is not linear. You just you don't get just two x or three x the number of quantum computers numbered together is the factor of which power you have more given that the quantum computers are the same in the first place. But yeah, so the overhead that comes with that is you need to communicate between the quantum computers at a minimum. That's like the first stage. So that alone costs time. So communication is not free. It comes at the speed of light. It's not instantaneous. And moreover, communication has multiple layers. And it's not like you communicate and get everything you need on the first message. So there's lots of messaging overhead involved with that. So that's one part that's distributed quantum computing that comes at a cost. And then the second part is just because you have a distributed quantum computer doesn't mean you can run the algorithms that you can run as if there were one single computer. There's a layer before that. So when you write your algorithm in Qiskit or something like that, or some monolithic version, meaning I programmed my algorithm, designing it specifically for a quantum computer that exists in one location. Now, taking that algorithm and taking it to a distributed setting costs something again. <laughs> so there has to be an algorithm that remaps that algorithm to the distributed system. And that algorithm can behave differently depending on the topology of the distributed system, the qubits in the system for each device, how you perform your classical communication, if you need also an additional resource, which I haven't mentioned yet, which is entanglement between the devices. And that's also another communication cost is how much entanglement you need to generate. And that's also relies on which algorithm you're using and how you network your devices and what technologies you have. My point is it definitely doesn't come for free and it definitely doesn't give you a linear factor of improvement, but it gives you some improvement, let's say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's so many factors here. We're talking about the different ways of essentially sharing information between the quantum computers. You, the options you've got, you mentioned entanglement swapping, but also direct transmission of qubits that we discussed in the previous pod. That's just one level of complication. Then you've got the algorithm on top. You've then got the, what I think you call the architecture of the circuits that are, need to be implemented. So yeah, I'd be interested to know about what a control qubit is, because I see that comes up in some of the resource requirement trade-offs that you talk about. When we talk about control qubits, there's in each quantum processor, there's what I classify as two types of qubits, at least. There's a control qubit and then there's a communication qubits. And the communication qubit can be implemented in different ways depending on how the quantum computers are built. They're superconductor or they're made with different technologies, if the qubits can move physically or not. But in my picture is the qubits are all static. And we have the control qubit and the communication qubit. And in order to do distributed quantum computing, what you need to be able to do a two qubit gate across two computers. So if you're thinking about you have two quantum computers sitting next to each other, and I need to perform a C0 gate from one quantum computer to the next. So how do you get the control information from one computer to the other? can be done in a few ways. But the way that seems to be most efficient is to 
firstly establish entanglement between the two quantum computers. And to do that, we make use of those communication qubits. So maybe a picture to think about is like you have some a partition of control qubits and communication qubits. And then we interact the control qubits with the communication qubits on one side and do the exact same thing on the other side. So each quantum computer has communication qubits and control qubits. And then we transmit the control information from one computer to the next. You have to perform this particular operation, which involves generating entanglement and classical communication. <laughs> so that's a bit <laughs> complex, I mean, what to say in one paragraph. But I was going to say, where does the classical it? communication come in? Because you talk about it the easiest way of using a control qubit, but is it not the easiest way to just use the classical way as much as possible because it's tried mm -hmm. and tested? I say the easiest because technically I think both ways, like both ways I think of this, the way that's called the cat entangler, cat disentangler, this is slightly more efficient than performing quantum teleportation. Both involve classical communication, both involve creating entanglement between devices. But when you think of quantum teleportation, it's the movement of the quantum state from one place to another. So the classical communication always has to be done, but quantum teleportation involves this movement of information from one place to another. And if you don't want to accommodate that in your algorithm, then you have to move it back. <laughs> so if you think, okay, this qubit, which I label qubit A, lives on machine A, and qubit B lives on machine B, and I want to do a CNOT gate between qubit A and qubit B. And if you want to use teleportation, then you have to teleport qubit A to machine B, perform your CNOT gate between the two qubits, and then you could have the option of teleporting the qubit back or not. And generally, you want the qubit back because it simplifies thinking about the algorithm. Or else you have to keep track of where that qubit is moved to so that you can now make any modifications to the algorithm in the future. So if you put it back, everything stays the same. Everything is static again. But if you move it, it's on another place. So with the CAD entangler, it still uses classical communication and entanglement. But the benefit is the qubit is still in the same place as it was. So the information the qubit is holding, <laughs> let's say, is still static. It's still on quantum, qubit, still on machine A. Yeah, to not, me, without pictures. But <laughs> yeah, like yeah. It's a good test, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to me, I would think that you'd want to dispose of that qubit once you've done the scene update, because it's just complex to send it back again. Come on, it's hard enough to send it over once, surely. Why do you need to restore it? But I guess that I'm missing some fundamental information there. But if you said destroy the things you might need to use it again. You might need that information more than once. That's the thing. Next topic, I just want to, it's related for sure. I'd like to just understand a bit about qubit connectivity within a machine and a little bit about the hardware and how the qubits are held. I know there's many ways of doing it, but I've seen pictures of quantum CPUs, Q QPUs, with X number of qubits on board. And mm -hmm. I'm imagining that there is essentially the qubits are held in space somehow using whatever field it is that is reacting with the qubit and is able to hold it in space. But then what kind of issues are there or perhaps what kind of challenges are there with getting qubits to interact with each other inside mm -hmm. a chip? 
because if you're wanting to send qubits between machines, that has quite a big impact on them, what you're going to do. And do you always hold those qubits in the same place and use them forever, or do they have to be regenerated every, every now and again? Yeah, so the connectivity problem, firstly, you said it depends on the technology. So superconducting chip is fixed. They don't move around physically. What goes through them is some currents, and that current acts as a qubit. But there's no movement. That current is fixed on the chip. And when you have multiple qubits on one chip, you need a way to... The goal of quantum computing is interact, is to make use of entanglement in some way. So to get entanglement, you want to use more than one qubit. And therefore, you need to make quantum operations across more than one qubit. So imagine you have a grid, let's say it's three by three grid, and you want to interact qubit at the bottom left with the top right. So in order to do that, generally what you do, you shine some light at it, this microwave pulse. And if you shine a microwave pulse across the whole grid, you'll interact with all of the qubits on the grid, potentially, causing errors on the other qubits. So what you want to do is bring the qubits close together somehow, and then make a narrower beam so that you don't interact with the remainder of the system. And that's the connectivity problem, is bringing qubits close to each other. Can you interact at all qubit at the bottom left or the top right? In order to do that, you need to make this procedure called a swap. Not an entanglement swap, but a swap. It's a, it's a different concept. It's just basically thinking about alternating position one with position two. Two goes to one, one goes to two. And then you shuffle the qubits around on the chip. Not the qubit itself, not the physical qubit, but the information on the qubit gets shuffled. The state of it. Exactly, the state. Right. And that needs to be moved close to the two interacting qubits so that light pulse doesn't interact with the entire system. It's a, more, it's a narrow beam. And that's the connectivity, is can you actually bring those qubits close to each other in order to perform two qubit operations? And then I think the next part was, do you reset the system every time? So there's a lifetime of the qubits, and the lifetime determines how big of an algorithm you can run or how long of an algorithm you can run. So the lifetime of a qubit could be something like, this is hugely out of orders of magnitude. Let's say it's 10 seconds. And if it takes one second to perform a gate operation on the qubit, then you can run 10 gates on the qubit, and that's the extent of your algorithm, let's say. So then after 10 operations, your qubit state becomes a mixed state, and it's just a random output. It has no meaning. And that's, that's the problem. So the goal is to extend the lifetime of the qubits so you can put more operations in one go. Yeah, so that's one goal to reach. And also is to shrink the duration of the gates. So you have kind of two parameters to work with. If you can run the gate in half a second instead of one second, then you also increase the size of the algorithm. But after the extent of the lifetime, like when the lifetime of the qubit expires, then of course you have to reset and redo. That's quantum anyways. You always have to repeat the process many times to get the statistics of the system. Reset the system, run the algorithm, reset the system, run the algorithm. It's, yeah, <laughs> that's usually how it goes. So the magic of the hardware is being able to, I think of it as spinning up the state that's necessary and performing all of the tasks necessary in advance of implementing the circuit and the bigger the grid of qubits the more complicated that is mm. um, yeah that's correct exactly so if yeah. you have bad connectivity let's say 
then you have to add a lot more additional gates to your algorithm only for moving the qubit information around. And that actually, that, that's not about the algorithm. That's just about bringing the qubits close to each other so they can perform two qubit gates. So it's adding additional logic that doesn't perform anything meaningful and you lose in that sense too. So the larger your algorithm, larger the circuits, that means the larger the quantum processor, the more gates you need just for moving things around. But also, like you said, one thing is spinning up the state. That's one part of the algorithm that I didn't mention, actually, state preparation. So bringing the qubits into the state you need in order to operate on them in the first place also contributes to the lifetime of the duration of the algorithm. And generally, what is in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to loading classical information onto the quantum state, is by the time you load the classical information, the lifetime of the qubit is already finished. <laughs> And you don't even get a chance to perform your algorithm because loading information also is costly. So that's, there's a lot of problems. With qubit lifetime, the longer it is, the better. But there's so many things involved that occupy time that isn't even related to the algorithm itself. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then now let's zoom out a little bit again and go back to the distributed computing example. You spoke about remapping monolithic circuits and I think of that as a bit like when you take a monolithic application and you refactor it to your microservices architecture, and you're essentially putting different services on different machines mm. or different locations. It's clear that there's a whole bunch of other things you have to build into at the entanglement between QPUs, perhaps. What other things do you have to take into account when you're developing the way a circuit is going to be distributed across multiple machines? Yeah. So as a user, ultimate goal would be that they wouldn't have to consider those things themselves. But when you write in the compilers and things like that, then of course, every, then it has to be considered. That's for sure. And some of the things I think are important, of course, is conductivity of the architecture. So you don't want to continuously use qubits that are far away from each other that always have two qubit gates next to each other, for example. If you have a quantum algorithm that has a lot of two qubit gates between two qubits, <laughs> that are, then when you make that remapping, you should try as best as possible to keep those two qubits on the same device in the first place. That will reduce the classical communication overhead. And then again, what you think when you go to the layer of the single quantum computer is make sure that those qubits are close to each other physically on the chip itself. So localize them to the same quantum computer and localize them on the quantum chip. So that's one part. And that's what a compiler should think about when it's executing that compilation. Well, going across the network, right? I guess there's ultimately some kind of atom-light interaction where you need to take either entanglement between a qubit on a chip to something that's being sent across the refined qubit, and then the same process has to happen in reverse on the other end. Oh, yeah. This is like transduction, as far as I know. It's taking the quantum state, bringing it to a flying qubit. So there's, two, there's a couple of things there. So it's the entanglement. So you could do something like creating entanglement. So there's still, there needs to be transduction done, but you could do it with communication bits like that don't contain information. So you can establish the entanglement without having to think about interfering with the information containing qubits, but you still need transduction. So you need to create a flying qubit so that you can generate entanglement between devices. And that's also very costly. It's not deterministic. You don't always get that on your first attempt. And that's another thing to consider is 
uh, as you're establishing entanglement, those qubit lifetimes are deteriorating. Right? The time as time goes on, so everything has to be done fast, and everything has to be done without failing as much as possible. I lost my train of thought. Though. <laughs> I think we were talking about what goes into. It's very easy to do. I am listening to you talk. I'm constantly losing my train of thought. <laughs> the layers of complexity that we're describing are uh, they're quite mind bending, really. I know we. We have all these different layers of the way our computers and networks used in the real world at the moment. And ultimately, we're looking at different ways of creating the same kind of stack with in-chip, distributed behaviors, and everything that goes with that. And then the whole control layer over the top of that. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it is. It's a lot to it. For me, anyway. Yeah. That's the fun of talking about it, I think, in this yeah. way. <laughs> So what about the, uh, let's go to the control side. If you're going to, let's say you're in a world where we have the technology to seek a monolithic circuit, spread it across three QPUs, you need some kind of scheduler or a controller that is going to decide what that looks like. And I think of that as a bit like a scheduler you get in an operating system, schedule and different tasks down to the CPU. And then, of course, you've got scheduling or thread management at the actual CPU itself. So would you have those two kind of same processes? And is that a good analogy? I think so. I think this problem of orchestrating the quantum computers is a completely classical problem. It's just resource management in a sense. There's nothing quantum about the operating system. It's just making sure the resources are there when they're needed and making sure there's no overlapping resource requirement or something. No, no two quantum algorithms are using the same resource at the same time. And that's the same thing in classical, I think. It's, you can think of it like files or something. Not writing to the same file, not modifying the same file, make sure that there's, there's thinking about the RAM and the quantum computer, that no two programs are using the same memory. So I think it's exactly analogous to that, like you said. Yeah, so it's got to take the runtime schedule and ensure that each QPU is ready for it. It's freed up the resources. I could also draw an analogy to time-sensitive networking where you have a controller oh, yeah. Yeah, in the, the center of the network, which kind of tells the switches, devices on, on, on route to reserve, make sure that traffic is prioritized, or in, in this case, maybe ensure that the QPUs are ready to send and receive at the right time and everything can happen without hitch. Okay. One thing I can talk a bit more also, the one thing I like about distributed quantum computing, I have parallel quantum computing and distributed quantum computing. And parallel quantum computing to me means that two quantum computers are working together to solve one problem, but they don't interact with each other. So it's basically parallelization of the quantum algorithm with no interaction until the classical outputs come. And that's actually another thing that you can gain by networking quantum computers together, let's say, networking in quotes, because they're not actually talking to each other. You only merge the outputs in a clever way. My point is... You can run a quantum algorithm on multiple devices without the devices interacting with each other. And that's what I call parallel quantum computing. And that's a much, much simpler thing. That's nothing that we can't do today. We can already run that. And probably they already do. <laughs> so that's, but that's nothing but classical communication. So an example, I think, is if, just to recap, you're ultimately running multiple quantum algorithms on some data or solving some particular problem with an algorithm, but you need to perform this multiple 
times on different data sets or something, and you're merging the information then classically in whatever application you've got in the rent. Yeah, that's just scaling, isn't it? That's just using more resources. Mm-hmm. But from what I can tell, you know, the speed at which these algorithms was done, if you had one quantum computer and then just hit one and then another one and another one, you're probably still going to be able to serve that need within a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Do you know of any use cases where you might need parallel computing in that way, where you need to perform the algorithms at the same time? Yeah, there's this one of the paper we wrote some years back, a couple of years ago, listed three different ones that were well suited. But I think of the three that we listed, the best one was the variational quantum eigen solver. That one is quite well used. I think it's one of the driving algorithms of quantum computing or quantum simulation at least. And so in variational quantum eigen solver, usually you have this system Hamiltonian. It's the operation that dictates how the system moves with time. And that Hamiltonian can be rewritten in a way that it's a sum of operations. So you take one operation and you break it into a sum of operations. And because it's like a linear sum, you can run each of the parts of the sum one at a time, or you can run them all at the same time in parallel. And then you, after you run this operation over each part of the sum, you have to merge the sum back together and you have one output. So you take something singular, break it into many pieces, execute the many pieces, and then merge them back together for a single output. And how you break them up into pieces, how you execute the pieces, you can do it in series, you can do it in parallel, that's not important, but it's, it could be done in parallel. And that would basically speed up the, the runtime, not the complexity of the algorithm, but this time in which it basically increased number of resources in order to reduce the runtime. Yeah. So, yeah. So what was the use case though that you mentioned in the argument? So what was that? It's generally used in chemistry, finding the energy level of molecules. The usual use case is finding the ground state energy of a particular molecule. And a molecule has a Hamiltonian, and then you plug this Hamiltonian formula into the VQE, and VQE is then used to minimize the energy level. You get an estimate of the ground state energy, which is important for like drug discovery. I'm not so familiar with that stuff, but as much as I know. Don't worry, you've lost me already. But <laughs> no, I, I, I know that a big farmer, and this is one of the big areas mm-hmm. where it's seen that computing is going to provide the biggest impact, first of all, in simulating chemical systems, right? And their interaction behavior. I think we'll probably do another pod on this one, but I want to ask you about simulation. Simulation of distributed quantum computing. My understanding that simulation is simulating the quantum interactions, the quantum computing interactions on the execution of the circuits in a classical computer. Is that right? And is it the same concept when you want to build a prototype simulation of a distributed quantum computer using some distributed quantum network? Yeah, I'd say the concept is extends. So when you simulate quantum computer on a classical machine, it's about tracking the quantum state using the representations that we have for qubits and try to do that as efficiently as possible. And then there's a matrix multiplication. And that's what you do to simulate a quantum computer on a classical machine. If you want to do distributed quantum computing simulation, 
then on top of that, what comes is the communication layer. And the communication layer is the way we simulate it is we use either multi-processed programs or multi-threaded programs to mimic one device per thread or one device per process. And then the communication between processes is what needs to be added in reality. So you can simulate the communication layer by basically parallelizing quantum computing simulations and then add the communication layer using something to enable the discussion of messages between processes. Yeah, so I'm thinking you're not really simulating the quantum behavior that's required for quantum networking there. You're just sharing information between processes which are simulating the quantum computers. That's true, yeah. That's for noiseless simulation, I guess that's depends on what you're interested in discovering, but that's one thing to do is if you just want to know, does my algorithm work in principle? If I had perfect quantum computers, does this at least solve the problem I'm trying to solve? But there are definitely ways to go one layer lower and can look at the noise effects using simulation too. Yeah, that could be done using different techniques. I think, yeah. And it probably, I think it has been done too. I think I can think of at least one paper. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Mm. Yeah, another analogy from me. I see simulating the quantum computers in a distributed sense, a bit like the way digital twins work these days. Digital twins are simulations of a particular environment, many different types in different industry verticals. But a lot of them will have applications that are talking to each other and they can get very complex. But one thing they tend not to do is actually simulate the networks that connect all of the devices, right? It's just a given that each of the applications that are performing the process, whatever that is, mm-hmm. can connect with each other and so on. So yeah, that's just another kind of strange analogy from me. Mm-hmm. But that's how I see it. Yeah, there's so many questions to ask about distributed quantum computing. You can implement the simulation in many ways, I think. And it's all it comes down to what's the question you're trying to answer. I mean, for me personally, I'm always curious about does the algorithm actually distribute and how much communication is involved when executing on a particular topology? So So that is above the physical layer, but probably a physicist would be interested in thinking about what noise tolerance do I have how long can the algorithm run? What's the physical properties of the system? Like that's maybe it depends on the person, it depends on the question. <laughs> and there's so many ways to do it though. So you said this is a niche part of the industry um, because you know, a lot of effort is going into scaling and improving quantum computers as a priority, which is understandable. What do you see happening with distributed quantum computing looking forward, maybe two, three, five years? I think within two years, probably nothing. <laughs> in five years, maybe there will be the first experiment. Let me correct myself. There was an experiment done, I think two years or three years ago, within three years, of executing a distributed CNOT gate over 50 meters of fiber. So that's the first step of distributed quantum computing. So in theory, someone has done a distributed quantum algorithm, <laughs> at least if you call one CNOT gate an algorithm which is still very impressive and is still very challenging. So two static qubits connected with a fiber, and then they put a flying qubit, which interacts with the static qubit into the fiber to bring the control information across devices. And that actually is no entanglement. And the way they did that was quite interesting because I didn't know about that approach. It could simplify a lot because if you don't need to generate entanglement, then you 
save a lot of resources. But then you have to rely on the lossiness of direct transmission. Right? Yeah. The difficulty that comes with that. Yes. Yeah, that's the trade-off. But so anyway, to get back to the question about timelines, I think in within five years, maybe a more complicated system, something like connecting two IBM quantum computers will be seen. I suspect that will be done in five years. But I think it's still the main goal is to make a quantum computer that at least works individually. <laughs> and that's why most people just focus on that. So there's still so many open problems with monolithic quantum computing that distributed quantum computing is on the back burner right now. But it'll, I think it has to come eventually. I believe it's inevitable, uh, maybe in 10, 15, 20 years. If there's one good quantum computer, then the next step is to just network them together. And it will come with certainty if we can do quantum computing on a monolithic level. It makes sense for it to come. When you think about economies of scale and maybe efficiency diminishing, the larger the computing system gets, the individual computing system, then it seems, even if it's not something that lasts permanently, it, it often there's like an intermediary period where that might be the most cost-effective thing to do. Yeah. Cost not always coming into it, but I know it's an important factor, especially with the commercial applications. Okay, Steve, listen, that was totally fascinating. Yeah. I have to go and lie down in a dark room now for a few minutes just to recover. <laughs> Loads of questions as usual. I'm sure we've got much, much more to talk about on these topics. Thanks very much. Yep. Thank you. And great chatting. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. And I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word, it would really help us out.